fun song to play, fun song to sing. Man, and any song that talks about revival, it just speaks to my heart, man. I'm a... I uh, actually, too, I brought extra strings just in case. It's going to happen eventually. And I think it's already, and, you know, and, and it happens at least once a year, guaranteed. It's already happened once this year. But it'll happen a second time. Yeah, it might be good. It might be totally good now. Totally good. Uh, well, it's a no-brainer. You know where we're at to this morning. We're going to be in Mark. We're almost done, I know. This chapter is so long, though. Uh, we are going to get to cut it down a little bit today, but we still have a couple things before we finish this chapter, and then it's just, 50, you know, just a couple more. But we're inching forward. We are moving forward. I mean, with each passage, we get closer to the cross, closer to everything, right? I mean, everything we've examined, everything we discussed, everything we've meditated on and, and looked at has all been leading us to the cross. I mean, it's the whole reason why Jesus has come, and, and this is Jesus' great gift to humanity. It's his life. It's poured out for everyone, right? As one man's sin would plunge the world into darkness, it's one man's uh, act or gift that's going to bring it back into the light. And the whole purpose that we're kind of driving slow or trudging through Mark is so that we can gather as much understanding as we can to the gospel. Uh, uh, we're an early church, uh, uh, and as any early church, uh, I know I've been in churches that have been around for a long time, and I always like, I, I don't really like, one of the things you just don't hear a whole lot of, unless it's Christmas or Easter, or Easter really more than any other time, it's just a simple gospel message a lot, or something that encompasses a lot of the gospel. Like we, we are spending all of our time driving to the cross. The whole, the whole book of Mark is just the story of Jesus and the cross, and so we are spending all of our time this entire year, and even I think some of last year we started this. This whole thing has been driving to the cross, learning about Jesus. Driving, I don't think we can learn enough about Jesus. We just can't. There are plenty of wonderful stories in the Old Testament of which I love, probably, probably sometimes more so than the New Testament, but there is no story. There is no uh, person of interest like Jesus. Jesus' story is told throughout the entire Bible. Everything is leading up to this moment, even every, every story in the Old Testament. So this is why we are here. I want us to be equipped in the gospel, equipped in the truth. After all, it's the truth that sets us free, amen, and ultimately sets others free. And if we're equipped in that truth, not only is our, do we become free, but we set others free as well. So Mark chapter 14, we're going to be at verse 27, and we'll read to 31. And then we'll pick up a little more to add to this story here in a little bit. But we're going to start it off right here. Say amen if you're there. Amen. All right. Well, got a few of you. The rest of you are waiting on your digital Bible to load. All right. Internet's slow because everybody's trying it once. It's okay. Mark 14, verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the others said the same. We'll stop right there. So after sitting at the table, the very last supper that Jesus would ever get to sit with his friends and eat at, and after singing the hymn, Jesus falls back into this. He tells his friends that they're all going to fall away, that they're all going to scatter. And from this statement, there is one who will rise up, basically, and, uh, and say that he would never do such a thing. Peter. Now, Peter is boisterous. He is a good friend, really a great friend, right? His heart is in the right place, at least I believe. And I love this moment, right? It's, it's this heartfelt moment of protective loyalty. You are my friend. There is no way I am ever not going to be your friend. I will be here. I will never disown you. I am your friend, right? It's, it's noble. It's, it's loving, However, Jesus specifically tells Peter, not only will he disown him, but he will do it three times. And he will do it before the morning rooster crows. Now, how does Peter react? 
I think he reacts like all we do, right? Nuh-uh. Not me. I would never do that. Right? I would die before I ever disowned you, Jesus. It ain't ever going to happen because we're best friends. Best friends, I am so sorry. I can't stop. I don't know how to stop that. Turn the internet off, I guess. That's uh, my phone getting text to my computer. There are times when technology is awesome and then times not so much. Anyways, so I know for me, like that's how I would be like, there's no way. I'm never going to betray. It's never going to happen, right? And maybe, maybe what I love even more about this whole situation is is Peter's leadership in this moment, right? Jesus gets up and he makes a statement, you're all going to do something, you're all going to scatter. And Peter's the first one like, ain't no way that's happening to me. I'm going to tell you right now, I ain't doing that, right? And what happens? Everybody else jumps up and goes, that's right, right? You know what I love? I guess because as Wednesday, as we're exploring leadership, it starts somewhere. Can I tell you, you can already see the formations. If you hadn't already, and we've discussed it already, there's times where you just see Peter is the leader. Peter is not scared to be wrong. First of all, that's a great quality of a leader. Peter's not scared to be wrong. All right? Number one thing, too, about leaders. Leaders ask questions because they want to understand. They want to know why. Who do you say that I am? Peter's the first one that says what? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Nobody else stood up and said that because they're all scared. Leaders can take risks. I mean, that's part of who Peter is. And Peter in this moment is no different. What does he do when it says everybody's going to disown me and they're all scattered? Not me. And you know what that does? Come on, you've been in a room where somebody stands up and says something. It, it pushes you, doesn't it? When somebody stands up, it's like, I would never do that. And you're like, me either. I would never do that. Come on, we've seen that movie where one person raises their hand, then all of a sudden everybody raises their hand because they all want to be a part of something bigger than themselves too. Peter, is this is who he is in this moment. This is awesome. This is a good moment. This is not necessarily a bad moment. Are we really any different? Have you ever said something that you uh, uh, absolutely and 100% meant and then had to back off and totally betray your word because their circumstances changed? You ever made a promise you couldn't keep? In my pursuit to marry my wife, I moved to Washington State and I began working with my now brother-in-law. When I originally took the job uh, that I told them that I would come up there and help him in their new business at least for a year. Uh, It wasn't three months after arriving that I met Joy. I had married her. Uh, We were poor as all get out during this time. I not only worked in the business with my brother-in-law, we were driving records at the time, but I was also literally pumping gas and fixing tires and working like a couple of different jobs there. And uh, my newly married wife who... um, and maybe through only the pressure of my own, who I really just wanted to take care of, and I knew I could totally be the sole income for us back in Texas the whole time, was working two jobs, hosting at a restaurant and nannying, which was awesome for an NFL player. And we had uh, both two jobs, just trying to make ends meet, and we barely did that. And there were times where we stressed out, and those were all brand new times for us, where we laugh about these things now when we're late on a payment. Like uh, to, back then, when you're making your first payments to bills, you're freaking out when you're late on a payment. You know, now, 20 years later, you're like, they can wait, <laughs> right? I mean, like, it's still different now. You know, it's not as scary as it was when you're first doing that, right? So, like, because every, one thing everybody understands is universal is everybody struggle. Everybody understands that, right? People are usually pretty understanding of that, except businesses who want their money. But, you know, for the most part, even they are somewhat understanding. And so here, here, after four months of continuing to do this after we're married, I just reached a point where my desire to take care of my wife was so great uh, that I wanted to move back to Texas where I could easily provide for her. And it was at this point uh, when I was said, hey, I'm leaving. I'd only been there about eight months. It had been four months shy of a year. And it was quoted back to my face, despite my circumstances, that I had promised to stay there the full year. And I remember thinking, well, that's dumb. Of course I would recant that promise. Of course, I mean, that, you can't, I can't provide for my family. At what point do you care about me? That isn't here nor there. Let me tell you something. I promise something. I'm only as good as my word. And my brother-in-law, as insincere as he's been, was still just trying to hold me to the very word that I had given. He was only quoting me my own words back. I'm the one that had said I would give him that time. I'm the one that promised that. I'm the one that stood up and said, trust me, you can take my word to the bank. And that was a lie. Because at the end, the circumstances shifted in such a way that it was, more, it was easier for me to get beat up on recanting the promise than it was for me to move and take care of my wife. It has been a great lesson to this day about making promises. 
because it still hurts me to this day to talk about it. I still feel bad because I said it. I said, I promise you, I will stay the year. I'm four months shy of the year. I could have sucked it up and made it. I could have. But I really was so tired of it and all this, and I've got all the excuses in the world for why I didn't. But to the, even to this day, it makes me think twice before I promise someone. Um, and and maybe, maybe you've been there too. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 7 says, When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to Him. It's better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin. And don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. That that would make God angry and he might wipe out everything you've achieved. Talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. I, now listen, you know, today I have a tendency to say, listen, if I can, I will. But that's all I say. If I can, I will. I know better these days than to say something like, I promise you, I'm going to get it done. Because life happens, and I've experienced enough of life at this point to know that circumstances change. And when circumstances change, it changes what my ability is. There are some days where we can, like even in the church, we might totally help in, in some circumstances, but then there are other days where the, the ability to help might not just be there. And that was only a time-sensitive period. Well, that time has passed, so the word that I give here can't apply here. Well, let me tell you something. Better not to promise that at all then. Because I don't know what the end outcome could be, and I don't know what the circumstances, they could change. So what I've always come to say, and you're going to hear this from me, if I can help you, I will. If I can. I reiterate that always. I never promise that I'll help anybody. I always say, if I can, I will. Because I believe personally, and I'm pushed by this through Christ Jesus, if I can, I should. If I can, I should. And I've, I have covered, listen, I've covered all my past broken promises in the blood of Jesus. And today, I'm, I'm a bit wiser before I promise anything. We're only as good as our word. I'm not going to promise you something that I cannot honor. And I think that you should be the same way as three, because you just don't know. You don't know if there's some external circumstances or something unforeseen or unknown. Peter led the charge of saying that they would never abandon Jesus. It's never going to happen. And everybody else just followed in. We also swear it. It's never going to happen. We're never, ever going to disown you or, or say that we're not yours, right? And listen, I'm going to tell you in this moment, as awesome as that sounds, it's like Knights of the Round Table type stuff. There's so much honor in this, right? But as nice as that sounds, uh, don't follow Peter's lead because I'm pretty sure at some point uh, you've done the same for Jesus. Where you said, oh, Jesus, I'll never dis disown you. I'll, I'll never act or or appear as if I'm not one of yours, right? Everybody's been a Judas, though. If anything, in the last two weeks have taught us is that everybody's been a Judas, even the disciples. This is what makes you just like them, right? You are just like the disciples. And, and listen, I understand your sincere belief that in, in that specific moment that you really mean what you say. I get that. I do. I even believe that if, if we were to put you through a lie test and you said, I swear, man, I'm, I'm sold out to Jesus for the rest of my life. I'm sold out to this or I'm sold out to that or I'm whatever. I believe it. I believe we could take it to the bank. We could hook you up to a polygraph and you would pass it. However, the promises of people are proven to be fickle things. And you and I both have experienced times when people have rolled back their promises for whatever reason. Everybody here has experienced someone who has broken a promise to them, even your own parents. Be grace-giving here. Because something tells me, you, you all understand, I can't imagine how many promises I've broken as a teenager alone. You know, one thing I heard as a youth pastor all the time, I used to tell kids, quit saying I love you. Stop it. You don't love them. You like them a lot. But you don't love them. Jesus defines what love is, not, not even Pastor Jim. Love is eternal. Love is a choice. You know how people wrong Jesus all the time, and he chooses to love them despite their wrongdoings towards him. Jesus chose to love the people who spit on him, beat him, and mocked him, pulled his beard out, ripped his hair. Come on. He chose to love them. That is not you and I. Somebody does that to us. We call that a fight. Right? And we don't love people that hit us in the face. We don't love people that spit on us. We tend to not love people who are mean to us, okay? 
But Jesus does. Jesus defines what love is. The Bible gets to define that. You don't. Guess what? Uh, Jerry Maguire doesn't get to define that. Guess what? The notebook is not even close. It's, I mean, it's not close. It's a story written by a guy who's got a divorce. Probably because he had a notebook life where he spent one time. I mean, come on, like that whole movie is like rancid when you look at it compared to the Bible. I mean, one guy spends the whole time sleeping with this other girl who knows that, she doesn't lo- that he doesn't love her because he's so busy loving somebody else to which he ends up breaking up that marriage where she looks at and appears all happy. Oh, yeah, nice little love story. No, it's not. They wreck other people's lives to get to themselves. Horrid love story. Written by a guy who would ultimately divorce his wife. All that fame and fortune. It's easy to write about love. It's a whole other thing to live it. And when we're teenagers, we're so easy to speak and talk. By the way, I'm, I'm talking. The reason I understand this is because as a kid, I know I've said all those dumb things too. Where we think we're so sure of it. But we're so fickle. We're such fickle people. We're fickle about the things we say. We're fickle about what we do. And listen, because of that, that's why you should be grace-giving. Because you want grace given to you. You need to give grace to others in this area too. So Peter meant well. And his point is simple. Listen, he, he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. He wants to be by his side forever. Amen. Nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, this promise was going to have some huge effects on him, and it becomes probably one of the lowest moments in his entire life. What should be this like Knights of the Round Table? We will never, we will never run away. We will always be by your side. We will fight with you. We will be here forever. We, I mean, like the whole honor and chivalry and all this, this should be one of the greatest moments, but it's going to become one of the worst moments of his life. If you look down a little farther in verse 66 in Mark, it says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You are also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. You never know who you are until times are so difficult that they bring out that inner person within you. You know the one, the one that's hidden within you. The one that seeks self-preservation at all costs. Looking out for you. For Peter, this moment was the trial of Christ and also the trial of his character. Jesus is being spit upon, he's being uh, hit, he's being yelled at, and all the religious leaders of the day are calling for his death. He isn't the popular young up-and-comer anymore that they sang praises about uh, uh, upon entering Jerusalem. The crowd now has officially uh, been turned and coerced by the pastors of their day to become a lynch mob. And in their frenzy to destroy all things Jesus, someone turns and recognizes Peter. And here it is. Here it is. The moment of truth. The refining fire. The crucible. Do you have what it takes? This is the moment. The one you stood up for. And it sounded all awesome at the dinner table that had inspired everybody else. Will you stand strong now in the face of adversity? Will you deny the very person that you swore you would never deny? When it was popular to love Jesus, you loved Jesus, but now it's unpopular. It's dangerous, even deadly. What do you do, Peter? And what does he do? He denies ever knowing Jesus. Not just once, twice. He even adds a few choice curse words in there to make sure that he seals 
the deal. That way they will know by just the way he talks that he can't be a follower of Jesus because a follower of Jesus wouldn't talk like that. He wouldn't curse because this man's a holy man. You would talk like a holy man. You wouldn't talk around this guy like that. By the way, it leads me to the other point that I'd like to bring up kind of on the side of the notes here is that just by adding a few choice curse words, he could convince others that he didn't know Jesus at all. And I wonder if, if our words sometimes convince others that we don't follow Jesus at all. Has your mouth been made holy yet? And I hope so. Because maybe there's a reason nobody's gotten saved around you. Maybe they listen to the way you talk and they're not convinced that you've been around Jesus at all. You know what? Later on in the book of Acts, it was also said they could tell that they'd been around Jesus. Why? Because the way John and Peter talked. By the way they talked, by the words that came out of their mouth, or what told them or identified them with Jesus. What kind of words are coming out of yours? To seal the deal, to make sure that everybody's convinced Peter can just talk in a certain way. And those three years he spent with Jesus are wiped away and totally now become believable that he doesn't even know the man. Makes me wonder what those cuss words were. But it makes me think when I hear people that I know go to church cuss a little bit, I think, man, your mouth hadn't been saved yet. Which makes me wonder, it says out of the, the from the heart the mouth speaks. So maybe your heart's not quite saved yet either. Got to watch our tongue. And listen, this is not behavioral modification. All right, you can say everything you want. Listen, God redeems you. God can redeem curse words. That's not the issue. They're not something you can't come back from. What I'm saying is this. Jesus specifically, and the Bible preaches that when you get saved, you are transformed into a new creation in Christ. And there should be a tangible difference in who you are. People will notice. Listen, some people will be happy for you. And some people are going to hate you. That's part of the deal. It comes on both sides of the package because on, the people who are love you are the people that you never offend, which usually are other believers. They're going to be happy for you, right? The people you'll offend are the people whose now your life now condemns. Your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of righteousness now will now condemn them because their life isn't one. And in contrast to your life, because everybody compares or there wouldn't be social media. Everybody compares each other's lives. That's why social media is so popular, all right? You're already looking at somebody else's Facebook page or social media page going, look at that vacation. We should have went on to that. You don't even know that they probably fought the whole time they were there. It was like the most worst vacation ever. They took five good pictures where they were smiling, right? And you assume that it's like they have the awesomest life. Man, they could be losing in their marriage right now, man, in a divorce three months later. You don't know what somebody's going through. Don't compare your lives to anybody. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's happening. And so somebody compares your life that you're trying to pursue for righteousness. All of a sudden, you're not hanging around them as much anymore. All of a sudden, you're kind of setting yourself aside. Why? Because you're realizing real quick how weak you are. It's not that you don't like them. It's just that if you hang around them, you might find yourself just like them again. And the whole point of being transformed into a new creation is that you want more of Jesus. You want to be like him. Well, to be like him, you already know your struggles and your weaknesses. And Jesus has given you the strength to resist. And part of that resisting part is when we set ourselves aside, including our tongue. When our heart changes, our tongue will change. The things that come out of our mouth change. We start to edify and build up and live. Encourage. Nothing worse than somebody in the church who's bitter. Speaks bitterness all the time. Skepticism. Criticisms. It's like poison. Spewing poison. I, still, I start to wonder, are you saved? You might not cuss, but you sure are cussing to me. All those criticisms and skepticisms and lack of faith, man. You're a disease written in the church. You might not be cussing. You're just a devil in disguise. Come on, man. I, my, I love hanging around Larry Wallace. You know, Larry Wallace reminds me at times like, like well, you know, uh, I came in the other day and Brooks is like, oh, I'm not feeling good. And Larry goes, I don't want to hear it. As far as I'm concerned, you are healed in the name of Jesus. Quit talking like that. That's half your problem. <laughs> and I'm like, praise God, Larry, you're right. You know? Because I'm like, hey, just take some uh, aspirin, probably uh, some Benadryl. It's probably sinuses, you know. Not Larry. He's speaking in faith. I feel, I feel horrible. Good job, pastor. But I mean, like, that's, that's the difference, right? This Jesus inside us, man, optimistic. Why? Because we know Jesus. Listen, we're optimistic because our life ends in victory, right? What do I have to run around for? Remember, everything works out towards my good. 
Why do I need to be a sad day? Why even my sad day works for my best day? Come on. That's what the Bible promises. I'm only quoting God's scripture, God's word, his declaration over me. It changes who we are. For Peter, just a few choice words were able to convince everybody. And guys, we have to be smart here. We have to be smart with the things we say. By, by the way, the things we say come from our heart. They come from our heart. That's a check on you for your heart. I will say this, man. Something uh, Leonard Ravenhill likes to say, and it's stayed with me. I, I call it a leadership cliche or whatever. But we tend to say a praying man never sins and a sinning man never prays. And there's a pretty good chance if your mouth has gotten away from you that you are not praying like you should. And you should pray because prayer will align your heart and mouth together. Give your heart to the Lord. Those who pray give their heart to the Lord. A praying man never sins and a sinning man never prays. It's usually find out somebody's living a life apart from the church. I guarantee you they got no prayer life. Prayer life is an anchor that holds you to the righteous life. Make no mistake about that. In this moment where Peter's trying to figure out who he is, he finds out uh, that he isn't who he believes himself to be. It's a sad thing, really. Kind of sad. After all that chivalry, it turns Peter's just a man that wants what all men want to live. He just wants to live. Peter is human. As human as you and me. That being the case, I can only empathize with his ego at that moment. And I'm heartbroken for him. Because I think I'd be the same. I'm not going to lie. I'd be like, I am going to be with you forever. We're going to come kill you. All right, Jesus, I love you. You have a good day. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. It's easy to say. It's a whole other thing to find out who you are in the, middle of the, in the middle of the stuff. In Luke's gospel account, it reports that as soon as he cursed, saying that he didn't know Jesus, that Peter and Jesus lock eyes. At that moment, the rooster crows. And ultimately reminds Peter what had been said concerning that very moment. That moment he swore would never happen. Every time I watch The Passion, if you hadn't seen that, you should. Every time I watch it, that's the one time I cry. I mean, I cry at the cross and all this, those things. But that's the one moment I cry. Because I can't imagine what it's like to betray him to his face. The guy who's put up with you for three years. Like, Peter's not the easiest guy to get along with. He says a lot of stuff. At one point, Jesus calls him the devil. All right? He's so bullheaded, so strong-willed. I mean, this is why he's the leader. They're all scared of him. You can tell. I mean, Peter's a big dude. I mean, if he's not, he get, the Bible gives the impression that Peter is someone not to be trifled with. But in this moment, he is this broke and feeble and small. And as we come into this scripture today, I'm reminded of a book I'd read many years ago written by a young pastor in Washington, D.C. by the name of Mark uh, Batterson. He pastors a church called National Community Church, and he wrote a couple of books a while back. The first one was In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. If you hadn't read it, I would suggest reading it. The second book, it was kind of a sequel uh, to that, was called Wild Goose Chase. And in that book, there's a chapter where he discusses... Uh, the auditory condition of associating music to memory. Music to memory. And there, you know, I, I was looking this up. There are many studies out there today that deal specifically with how music can access memories within the human brain. Like they're using sound today to reach uh, uh, Alzheimer patients uh, and people with other brain-related issues. You know, like one of the ways, like I, I don't know, uh, there was um, uh, uh, different studies that are happening that shows when they play certain music that people who can't even remember who they are all of a sudden remember that they have these certain talents and gifts it unlocks pieces of the brain or how about this maybe this is maybe one of the easiest way that uh, uh you you could really understand this have you ever heard a song or a song gets played wherever you're at and you immediately are reminded of a memory Right? It's like, it's, it's like as if you were there again. You like start smiling, maybe get a little giddy. You know, I heard Def Leppard's pour some sugar on me the other day. I was immediately back in my mullet. My sleeves were cut off, and I'm driving around on the dirt roads again, like being redneck. You know, like, like it's amazing to me what a song can do to your brain. 
right? And you're like, man, I was such a kid when this thing came out, and, da, 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 and you start remembering, like, it's just like when you see an old vehicle that was around, like, when you were a kid, like, one of these, for me, it's the 80s, so when I see, like, one of these 88 Chevy pickups, I'm like, man, that thing is awesome looking. No, it's not. It's a old car, really, now, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, so, I, I mean, there, there are these memories. Hey, I love them. I love them, but there's these memories, right? Like uh, I, uh, Joy knows this too. She plays on this. And I don't know where it even came from, but somewhere in my teenage years, whether it was uh, uh, being a teenage boy or whatever, but I've associated eternity for women with just pretty. I, it doesn't matter. Like a guy could wear it, and I would think, man, somebody pretty is here. I mean, I, and so my wife wears it all the time, and I'm always like, yeah, she knows. She knows. Like, it's immediately something that does something to my brain. It's connecting dots right? It's awakening something within me that some past memory that I don't even remember has made that smell associated with something beautiful. Same way with songs. There's connections here, right? And so Pastor Mark makes actually a pretty good case that it's very possible that at hearing the rooster crow and at the same time of being reminded how he denied Christ while literally looking eye to eye with Jesus could have had a psychological effect on Peter. I mean, think about it. From that point on, every time he heard the rooster crow, it would remind him of this event. How would you like that? Because when do the roosters crow? Apparently in the evening and apparently in the morning. How about night and day? How would you like to be reminded of your failures? Every time you hear that song, that's playing twice a day. Just reminding you how weak you are. Right? This, this horrible betrayal of character against Jesus, who Peter called the Son of God. If anybody feels the ramifications of this, it's him. And I bet for those next few days after his death, Peter wasn't no morning person. Or an evening person or anything. He tried to get far away of that, I bet. right? But Pastor Mark's also quick to point out that he thinks Jesus understood this. And Jesus went to work in combating it. In John chapter 21, it actually records a later conversation that's not picked up in Mark between Jesus and Peter. 21 verse 3 says, Simon Peter said, I love this, I'm going fishing. (laughs) We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. They'd been out there all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, well, throw your nets on the right, side, right hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, He swam 100 yards in the ocean back to him. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were three large fish, and yet they hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question again. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. So Jesus came to Peter to rebuild his confidence by allowing him the chance to see that Jesus was neither offended nor did he condemn him. I mean, he even 
let out so much information that he eventually tells Peter that, hey, that, that whole, you're going to stand by me and not deny me, that's going to happen eventually. And you're going to die the martyr's death, but it will be because you stood strong in the face of adversity. I know you were weak here, but you won't be in the future. You're actually going to lead the charge you always wanted to lead. And you will carry the sheep where they need to go to the promise. Now, what I think is interesting is Mark in his book is quick to point out, Pastor Mark in his book is quick to point out in the context of the scriptures at what time this is all happening. Did you catch it? It's the morning. They'd been fishing all night. All night. And the sun is just starting to crest. And what are the sounds that you might hear in the morning? How about that rooster's crow? You think they might hear that around a place that's known for only two things, which is farming and fishing. I think Jesus knew too. He replaced that feeling of cowardice at the hearing of the rooster's crow with courage and confidence. And from that point on, every time the rooster would crow, instead of remembering how Peter had denied knowing Jesus, he would remember the charge by Jesus to take care of the sheep. Man, you got to love redeemable moments. Man, I don't know what you go through in your life. I, know, I only know mine. That's why I preach from my only experience I can preach on is from mine. But I do know this. God redeems moments. Your broken promises, God can redeem those moments. Those things, those, those memories that trouble you the most, God can redeem those memories. Those hurts, God can redeem those hurts. But you got to give it to him. Can't let it be your blanket. Can't let it keep you warm at night. It can't be the thing that creates your identity. Only Jesus is your identity. Peter doesn't get to hang on to that failure. He has to hang on to the future. And that goes for you too. You don't need to be hanging on to your failures. You need to be hanging on to your futures. Because you got one. You have one in him, right? This is Jesus. This is what he does. Psalms 30, 11 and 12. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing, right? My worst moment into my best moment. He says, you have taken away my clothes of mourning and you've clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. Whereas one event caused me to be one way, another event causes me to be another. And, and what was this way is no longer this way anymore. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Move on. Have a future. The psalmist says, I will give thanks to you forever, God. Jesus held no grudges then, and he holds no grudges now. He forgives you because he loves you. And how do we respond to that? We respond the only way we can. We respond by living a life in service of Jesus, giving glory to Jesus, and loving Jesus through obedience to Jesus. This is the holy life. This is the righteous life. This is the life that bears witness and testifies to the grace of God in our life. This is our witness before our friends, our family, our, to the city, to our country, and even the world. There's no moment that gets to define us. Jesus defines us. Your failure doesn't get to define you. Jesus defines you. Your failures are redeemable moments. Not only that, but if Romans 8, 28, if Paul, everything Paul learned culminates to that, that all things work together for our good, then your failure is only working together to grow you more into the image of Jesus Christ. So praise God for failures. People, when we started this church, and my wife got on to me because I would say it in front of y'all a lot. I was like, what's the worst we can do here? Fail? Close the doors? Glory to God. She's like, you got to quit saying that. I was like, you know, you're just like you're acting like we could fail. What I'm saying is I don't care if I fail. Because God promised me that it all works together for my good. What is failure when that scripture is held over you? If all of my bad decisions work towards my good. If all the hurt, pains, and troubles I feel work towards my good. What is left to be bad in this world? Now, mind you, adversity is going to wheel all that out of you. The struggles of this life, relationships, all these things, 
they're going to pull all of the things that you don't even like about yourself out. Your job is this. Be honest. Be honest. Not just with yourself, but with Jesus. Jesus knows the false self that you put on in front of everybody else, the fake smile that you come in and you act like everything's okay with your life. Jesus already knows past that. By the way, if that person starts praying, Jesus won't recognize that person because he didn't create that person. You did. That person on the inside that you keep hidden from everybody else, that's who Jesus created. And I'm trying to tell you that's like the glory of churches. When he said he set you free, he means destroy all those other personalities that you created to guard and block your heart and be the person he's created you to be. Failures and all. Bad promises and all. I hate to say it, it's almost like I wear my failures in my worst moments, like, like, like this badge of courage. But, but here's the thing is, you know what I found? It's liberating. Being able to say I mess up making prom- like promises and be able to share that story. Like I don't think I've ever shared that story from the pulpit about my brother-in-law and all that stuff that happened then. And it was a big deal. I mean, I didn't think that would be a big deal. Surely they'd see that I'm just trying to take care of my wife. Oh, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. I won't forget it the rest of my life. Because I broke a promise. And I hurt people through my broken promise. God has since redeemed that moment. Praise the Lord. And has taught me how to not walk in that way again. But I, I can't say that I understood that. Because I am all-knowing and all-wise. I, I know that now because I am an idiot. And God had to pull me through the mud that all the, 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 the stuff I created in my breaking of the promise. And here's the thing is, so will you. None of that is enjoyable. I think the hardest part of pastoring, if, if we can get the worship, I don't know, or joy. But if all of that is, is something, that's usually what we're trying to avoid. You know, I remember a guy trying to tell me he had, to, he had a pastor that he was having to let go. Um, just a different season. He could tell for this guy it was just a different season. Nothing, even anything bad. But he didn't want to do it. He's like, I don't want to let this guy go. So I know if I let this guy go, all these people are going to come ask me questions. They're going to think it's all bad. They're going to have all, because people just have the nature of the tendency to think that if something's happening, it's got to be bad. And so it's, I'm going to have to have like 100 meetings. I don't want to have 100 meetings. I just want to let this guy go and it'd be nothing. But that's not how it's going to work. So he goes to his dad and he goes, man, I'm struggling with this. I don't know if I should let him go. He goes, I don't know, it sounds like that's not what you're struggling with. It's, it sounds like you already know that you need to. Your part is you just don't want to do the work that comes afterward. Your, your problem is laziness. It has nothing to do with letting this guy go. And he felt so convicted, like his dad called him to the curb. You know, he thought he was going there to get that sympathetic voice like we all do. I'm going to go to my friend that just always agrees with me and never tells me anything bad. And they always just say everything I want to hear because that's what I want to feel. I really just want to feel good. I want them to lie to me so that I feel good about the decision I'm making that's a bad one. Instead of somebody that we have in our life that holds us accountable, go, that's wrong. That's not what you're struggling with. You're struggling with this. You're going to have to go through it. Peter becomes the great leader because he goes through it. Peter has the nerve. He gets that brilliant moment where he says, you're the son of God. And Jesus goes, good job, Peter. And then there's that moment with Jesus where he, where he goes, Jesus is saying, but don't you know that the son of man must be lifted up? You know, son of man must die. You know, and what does Peter say? Not today. And what, is, what does he say to Peter? Get behind me, devil. Hey, it's hard. Some days you speak up and it's a good thing. Some days you speak up and it's a bad thing. It doesn't mean you don't speak up. And this one, Peter stands up and he says, we'll never do that. And everybody else does what? They follow his lead. That's right. We got Peter's back. Peter's got your back. We're good. And then they all leave. You're going to have days where everything is great and you're going to make right decisions, right decisions. And you're going to have days where you make wrong ones. Give all of those to Jesus. Give all of them to Jesus. You know, this is a, a reminder because I know you have those moments in your life too where you hear something or you see somebody or something triggers some memory or bad decision or anything, right? But I'm, try, I'm here like this whole story is about the Lord trying to tell you that he'll redeem that moment with something else. Just as much as that one thing that you hear all the time that always makes you cringe, God can take that very thing and become the thing. Of, I mean, last, last thing real quick, and I, I just, this is a little personal, but, but uh, I don't know if I've, I've fully shared it. Uh, 
one of the things for me is uh, the Marine Corps. Marine Corps is kind of a touchy subject for me because I didn't finish out my tour. I came back from combat. And I, didn't, I wasn't doing okay, and the military didn't know how to react to that at that time. They weren't really talking about PTSD back then. They were still denying that chemical warfare was used on anybody in Desert Storm at the time, which I think they still are. But, um, you know, they didn't really fully recognize PTSD or anything like that or anxiety issues or anything like that, and I struggled with that. Well, it eventually led to, we, you know, they, they call it self-medication. I just call it living in sin. Drinking and uh, doing drugs, which eventually would get me kind of kicked out about almost three years in. So about a year, a little over a year short of my actual term, right? Well, for 20 years goes by, and I don't talk about the core. The first 10 years, I didn't even carry a gun because I didn't want to hold a gun anymore after all the things that I've done. And then I finally get to a place where I don't have any issues with that, mainly because I don't talk about it. This last year, I had, or this year, early this year, I had to go see a psychologist for the whole thing. We're going through a process where I am trying to have my discharge papers reversed from an other than honorable to an honorable at, through a misdiagnosis. And so they want me to go see a psychologist. I go see a psychologist, and I'm like, yeah, I'm totally good now. Like, I can talk about it. Da, da, da. He's like, yeah, no, you're not. He's like, I can, I can see you tearing up talking about some of the things that, that you've experienced and done. You know, I see your combat history, and I see the things that you've done. And, and he goes... He goes, you, you're, not, you're not okay with it. You've just oppressed it. And I was like, man, that's so true. He just read my mail. This guy's good. This guy's good. But can I, and I'll, you, know, you know why it's even come up? And I tell you, this has been the weird thing, and I think it just started here with pastoring this church a little too. I'll, about a year into here, people started inviting me to veteran benefits and veteran things. Hey, will you come out fishing with these guys? We take all these veterans that struggle with PTSDs, and you talk the lingo, so can we have you come out? I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, you know I want to do ministry to everybody, right? So yeah, okay. And then we go out there, and I realize, man, I'm not all that good. Like, I'm not good. We start talking about things. I don't want to talk about things, right? It's, it's hard. By the way, wounded people can help other wounded people, but it'll never be as good as a healthy person helping a wounded person. It's hard enough to drag a person who's gunshot off, especially if you're gunshot. All right? Healthy people always have a better, a better uh, ability of helping out the wounded than, than a hurt person does. All right? And so over the last couple of years, God has been pulling a lot of this out. And God is redeeming this moment. I mean, even this morning, I had a dream. I told Joy, I said, I had the best dream ever. Uh, I'll try not to cry. And in the dream... Because we're so in the middle of this process, uh, by the way, like when you get out with another non-honorable, you don't get any benefits. So all these years I hadn't any benefits, right? But when somebody convinced me from going to all these, hanging around all these veterans, they said, hey, you should go, man. You should go. If everything in your story is right, get all your records, show them your records and see what they say. So there's been a process over the last few years. And I can tell you in the last two years, they've looked at my records because my records, the way everything happened. Actually, their first advice was, we totally think you can get all this turned around. We've never seen anybody that has it as documented as you do, a case of PTSD issues. We've never seen it. Like, you went and talked to the chaplain. You told him it was depression. They sent you to a psychologist. They can see where I went to stress and anxiety management classes. I mean, it's all documented, you know? And they were like, you're totally, that's not going to be an issue. So now they've uh, service uh, connected me to the VA, which means I got all my veterans benefits. Now they were like, that's easier to get than your, ch your discharge. But if you try to go for the discharge, they'll think you're just wanting your benefits. So go after your benefits first. So that if they change the discharge, it's just a paper change. It doesn't mean anything because now you get all the benefits regardless of the paper. So that's my next step. This, this, this morning, I told Joy, I said, it's time to finish. And let me tell you why. So I woke up this morning and told Joy, I said, these are redeemable moments. As much as that is a heart crushing me not to have finished that, especially after I love it. I love my country. I love the Marine Corps. Uh, I had this dream where I'm standing there, and I'm with all these other soldiers, and I'm dressed like one of them. It's not like the old days where we had all the green camis wearing the whatever camis they're wearing today, and, and uh, I've got the uh, vest on. I don't think it's a flak jacket like the old days, but it's a, it's a vest like they wear today. And the guy's asking me all kinds of questions of like where I served and all this stuff. I'm like, well, I was with 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. And I'm telling him my story. And he's like, yeah, I was with 1-9. And I'm an officer with this. Da, da, da. And he's asking me all this. And it's like he's vetting me out or something, you know. And then all of a sudden, man, he comes and pins my rank back on me. And it's like they enlisted me again. 
it, which is weird. I was like, it's like I enlisted in the Marine Corps again. I don't know how my wife was okay with it because she was there and Reese was there. My older two girls apparently have moved on from me, didn't, weren't interested in seeing me re-enlist into the Marine Corps. But, but it was, uh, for me, it was the Lord going, I'm redeeming this moment. We're coming to the end of this. And, and, and God has made me talk about something that I didn't want to talk about for 20 years. Over the last two years, man, God has done a healing process in my life. That's why all of a sudden you hear me talk about stuff that you didn't. If you, went to, if you heard me at first time, you never hardly t- heard me talk about the core that much. But I probably talked more about it in the last two years than I ever have because God is saying that stuff, is, that stuff that is hidden back in you, that you've oppressed and you put down and you've tried to hide all that away and just, and just move on without talking about it. So that day's over. It's time to finish this. All right? Let's work on these things that you've oppressed. Let's work on these things that you've hidden away. Now, it's taken 23 years for God to get to that. But I think it's only because I have surrounded myself with the people that can help me get to the other side of it. I do. I think now in my life, psychologically, I am, I am well enough to, to the glory of God to handle the thing He's ready to surgically remove. Right? And here's the thing is, you don't know when that's going to be for you. For Peter, it's that morning over breakfast. And that rooster's crow went from uh, coward to courage. And who knows when your rooster crow is going to take place. And that's the Lord. And that's the glory of following. Because you don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years later. But here's the thing. It does, the rooster does crow for you too. The change, it comes for you too. And when it does, your heart will change. And then your mouth will change. And everything about you will change. And guess what? That change is infectious. It leaps and leaks into others. And it will change them too. Amen? Let's worship the Lord this morning. Well, praise God for his redeeming power that he so freely gives to each one of us. Without it, where would we be? We all fall short. We all need his love every moment of every day. So, Lord, we come this morning. First and foremost, Father, we repent. We come cleanly before you to your altar. And, Lord, we ask the tough question this morning. We ask that you would show us expose, Father, the things that are hidden so that they can be redeemed. And where it's tough and hard, Father, I pray you would walk through that with us. Lord, your love is big. Your grace is big. Let us feel no shame.